Open Gangnam Style. Look, you see, even Alice doing the Gangnam Style dance, and you never lose it, do you? That's quite good, by the way. Oh, yeah. Well, on this day in 2012, Gangnam Style by South Korean musician Psy became the first video on YouTube to reach a billion views. Have a bit more of a listen in case you've forgotten about it. Here we go. Wind it up. Yep, that's it. Uh, and if we are talking about a truly universal pop culture moment, it would have to be uh, the size success has been attributed as being a huge influence in the rise, not just of K-pop globally, but actually the whole South Korean music and film and cultural industry. Uh, Barack Obama, David Cameron, Sir John Key all did the Gangnam Style dance and I know Phil O'Reilly you must have done Gangnam Style at one of your business breakfasts. Obligatory surely. It's bound to be done somewhere in a Korean bar late at night. What surprised me about that was it's 2012 God I feel so old that it came out that way and it also reminded me about how these one big things lead to great lead to great trends. That that uh, Scandi Noir was another one that came out of a oh, great book called yeah. uh, Smiller's Feeling for Snow. You might recall it back in the day, way back in the day. No, I don't. And it, it led to a whole bunch of sort of Scandi Noir Did it? sort of stuff. It was brilliant. Yeah. So it's like maybe it wasn't. Maybe that was my introduction to it. But your point's right, Wallace. It's about this this cultural sort of breakthrough, and all of a sudden. Korean pop music becomes a thing. It's amazing. Yeah, sure, and, to the, and to this day, Alice, so much so that South Korea right now is one of the new hot travel destinations. I would like to go. Have you been? No, I haven't, but I, I agree entirely that, that these, exactly as you said, Phil, it takes a book or a song to open a doorway into a new world. And I mean, I've look at how many of the Korean films that have, you know, Parasite won an Academy Award. Of course. Um, the, the fabulous dramas, the, the Squid Game has completely yeah, yeah. dominated yep. Netflix. So so it, it sometimes just one event can open a door to a culture in a a really exciting way, which I I love. I mean, I didn't even know Gangnam was a place. I, is it? <laughs> it is. It's a region. <laughs> oh, there was there was a prison. So Gangnam oh, Style is oh. an actual region. <laughs> I've, yeah. I've learned Listen stuff. To us. <laughs> Listen to us. Gosh. Yeah, it's a region. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, kia ora, Wallace. W- big response to this. I've just resigned after teaching for 20 years. I've got qualifications coming up my ears. I don't need more money. I need support. Put a teacher raid in every classroom. Some children need so much support, it's not possible to meet their needs and teach the rest of the class at the same time. Thank you for your responses today. 24 to 5, Phil O'Reilly and Ella Henry with me today. Well, whether you're more excited about the music, the lights, the presents, Phil's barbecue or spending time with family, we can all agree that a hearty Christmas feast is one of the best parts of the day. Of course, a staple of the day is the ham, but do we know less about it than we think? According to a recent article by Consumer NZ, around 90% of our Christmas hams are, get this, imported. To tell us more, we have Consumer New Zealand Head of Content, Caitlin Shira. Kia ora, Caitlin. Kia ora. Yeah, about 40 countries send pork here, but we do make a little bit uh, of ham ourselves. I, 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 look, not necessarily new news, but it 
really surprises me every time I hear this, that so much of our Christmas hams are important. By the way, why are the majority of them imported? Well, I assume just because of demand. But yeah. I mean, last Christmas, it was quite hard to tell if your ham was local or imported because the packaging could have New Zealand written on it in quite big writing, but it might say made from local and imported ingredients. So the only New Zealand right. thing might have been the salt and the water. So they might bring it in and then turn it into ham here, but the pork itself was from another country. Then we had a law change in February. So now you have to state this country of origin where it's from. The problem is, that we still can't tell where it's from because the manufacturers say they haven't had a chance to kind of uh, change all the packaging. So they say things like, made from pork from one or more of the following countries, USA, Canada, Denmark, Germany or Spain. It's quite complicated, isn't it, when you read it like that, Ella? Methinks that sounds like obfuscation to make a fast profit, perchance. Well, the issue is actually, um, it's not really quality because, I mean, a pig's a pig. And they are a lot cheaper, these um, hams from overseas. The issue is pig welfare. So we have some quite strict rules in New Zealand um, about how we look after our pigs, and those rules are not the same in other countries. And, of course, there's also the kind of carbon footprint aspect of flying or shipping hams in from other countries. Phil? Yeah, I've got less worry to cut this point. I've got less worry about importing food. I mean, we are one of the biggest, per capita, one of the biggest food exporters in the world. So the last thing we want to be doing is saying, well, we'll export the food to you. We just don't want your food coming here. So that's it's quite a dangerous road to go but down. But it's not, not so much that, though. It's about knowing where yep. your food comes from, oh, surely. By that. And, and I think the, the point that Caitlin's making is the one that immediately occurred to me when I read the story, and it's about animal welfare, because, of course, with pigs, they're famously poorly treated in some countries. Uh, and uh, and what I would want to know buying a ham is not necessarily where it comes from, but has it been treated properly? Because right. you know, they're very intelligent yes. animals, pigs, uh, and you just want to make sure. And I think, I think as New Zealanders, we should be able to afford that, and we should be asking those questions. So for me, I'm less worried about if it comes from Spain or Portugal. My, I guess my bigger question is to say, has this been treated ethically? And you see that with eggs, for example. You see it with other things going on where there's claims made about ethical treatment. And I, you know, for me, that's the, that's the big thing. Stay there, Caitlin. Let's bring it. Do you want to respond to that, Ella? I, I do, because I, I agree absolutely with the position you're both taking. And, I think, and, and I'm privileged. I am very privileged to be in that community of New Zealanders who have the discretionary dollar so that I can go to the organic butcher and I can go to the the you know the butchery section and buy the top quality product with the New Zealand 100% on it. Um, the reality is far too many New Zealanders are not in that position and they're going to go yeah. to the cheapest possible meat source. So, so at least they can have a ham for Christmas. And, and I guess gotcha. we, we kind of have to park maybe our hopes that that pig was treated well because at the end of the day, we're eating it. Yeah, Caitlin? Yeah, I mean, that's a really fair point. Um, I, I think the issue is that, you know, I imagine some countries are worse than others, so I think it would be good to know which ones are using gestation stalls, which are those pens that where the cells have to lie on their side when they're pregnant and they're not allowed to move, which is pretty awful. And there are some countries where they castrate pigs without any pain relief, so there's some pretty awful okay. things that go on. So it's good to have the knowledge. And if people do want to buy New Zealand pork, then um, you've got to look for one of two stickers. There's 100% New Zealand ham or pig care. So those are the two stickers to look out for.
Yeah, actually quite a bit of response uh, on this. Uh, so kia ora for your feedback there. Um, and I'd like to ask you actually, um, what do you make of the issue regarding the well, how the pigs are treated? Is that something that is important to you um, when buying a ham? Or would you like it to be important? Echoing Phil's uh, suggestion there, 2101. What can people look for if they are concerned about finding a New Zealand ham for Christmas, Caitlin? Well, just like I said, the stickers are 100% New Zealand ham. Okay, back to the stickers. Yeah, yeah and, a, and a couple of other issues you should look at is it's quite worth looking at um, the percentage of pork compared to the percent uh, to the weight of the whole thing because it will actually tell you how much is pork and how much is water because they do inject water, salty water, into into the pork to kind of make it plumper and so on. So there are a few little tricks like that you can look for. And the layer of fat is quite good. It's about a finger thick, so you can do those good score lines to make the glaze. Very interesting, Caitlin. Kia ora. Thanks for that. Thanks for, and Merry Christmas to you, by the way. And yeah, to you. Yeah. Uh, 18 to 5, the panel, RNZ National, Ella Henry and Phil O'Reilly with me. Now, just a word on this. By all accounts, the Prime Minister found out on the same day she'd be showing up in a Prince Harry and Meghan Markle Netflix doco series when she filmed an interview two and a half years earlier for the Nelson Mandela Foundation. Here's a clip from the trailer. As leaders, we have the keys to create a sense of security and a sense of hope. It's about people who have made brave choices. To fight for change and to become leaders. And giving inspiration to the rest of us. To live, to lead. Yep, Ardern had no communication with the royals about the project. Jacinda Ardern uh, was blindsided apparently by this uh, and has not spoken to the Duke and Duchess about it. There's also the likes of uh, former Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in it. Uh, I just want to go around the panel and uh, what do you think, Ella, if you did uh, an interview two and a half years ago on... Uh, on another topic or from another institution next minute you're in a Netflix trailer. I think this is absolutely shabby production values. I mean, I think it's it's bordering on illegal <clears throat> because, you, uh, you know, whenever you appear in a documentary, you sign a waiver. So it's very clear what the, what the uses of the footage are. There seems to be a very murky relationship between... And I think that that's unfortunate because Mandela's name is associated with this. One of the greatest, you know, humanitarians in human history, his name is associated with a production which is high value, very good, very well worthy and I'm so proud that our Prime Minister was involved. But then to find that there's some kind of murky relationship with Netflix and the producers of the the documentary I was very concerned about that and if I were the Prime Minister I would be, I'd be lawyering up quite frankly. Would you? Absolutely. Big words there Phil. (laughs) I'm not sure she'd be able to lawyer up but I agree agree with that on this. This is at the very least discourteous uh, and and shabby uh, and these, these two hold themselves out to be the best of the best and full of the joys of spring and full of lovely stuff and high class and all the rest. Uh, and what they've demonstrated through this kind of behaviour is, Wallace, that they are vacuous wastrels, in my view. They just don't add much value at all, and I don't know why we pay them any attention at all. And it's just, it's, I feel as a New Zealander, my Prime Minister's being embarrassed through this. 
that is wrong, uh, and I really do hope that she does nothing to do with them in the future as a result. Of well, all- she was part of the Vogue shoot that the Duchess of Sussex, uh, Meghan Markle, curated, I believe, a special edition of Vogue, where she brought together yeah. a group of women leaders, and, and our Prime Minister was a part of that, as well as Greta Thunberg and others who were involved in this documentary. So, so there's obviously been some interaction with them in the past, but I, I do think okay. that whoever is the producer of this show has totally overstepped their legal boundaries. Of all- all the things I have heard from all media across the world, I've never heard such strong words, perhaps except from Jeremy Clarkson, saying they are vacuous wastrels. Well, I mean, what, what That's are they? That's intense. I, I agree, but I mean, I'm I'm just sick of listening to them. I'm, I just, what 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 value are they, these people adding? It's so a royal and a and a. Hollywood actress. I mean, and they're going to. That's fine. Please have your job. Go for your life. But please don't lecture me about all sorts of stuff that's going on in the world as if as if you have any special value okay. to add because you don't. Do you agree with them? Two one zero one. Strong words there from Phil. Fourteen to five. Now this got my attention. Could a Ministry of Works help close New Zealand's multi-billion-dollar infrastructure grab? Oh, grab. Sorry, I found this piece by journalist Dilipa Fonseca quite thought-provoking. You might recall the days. Oh, the Ministry of Works. Now, that was a government body that was responsible for the big projects, roads, railways, power stations. The Ministry of Works built in your Clyde Dams, Wellington Motorway, even the, the Bob Simple tank in 1941. It all ended up in 1988. Well, Max Harris co-wrote an 80-plus page report with lecturer Jacqueline Poor. She's now at MIT in the US. Kia ora, Max. Kia ora, Wallace. Nice to be on. Good to have you here. So for those who are too young to know what the Ministry of Works was, what was it? Yeah, well, as you said, uh, Wallace, it was a body that at different points in time uh, launched major construction projects and built up government capacity. Um, so there are a lot of buildings today that, as, as we found out in our research into over uh, 20 people, that came from the Ministry of Works' efforts, uh, buildings like Mart in Auckland and um, the Wellington Railway Station. It was um, by no means perfect, as talked about in our report. Um, at times it was a vehicle of colonisation. Um, at other times um, it had mixed effects. But what it did do was uh, really ramp up uh, housing construction uh, and infrastructure. Uh, and at some point in time it contracted out work. At other points in time it, it did work in-house. Um, but building up that capacity um, meant that the government could do more and at different points in time could do more right. quickly. And what we suggested in the report was um, perhaps it's time to think about uh, a new Ministry of Works, a Ministry of Green Works for the 20th okay, so century. Okay, so the, 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 I guess the backdrop is the Infrastructure Commission recently took a look at how these mega projects, for whatever reason, end up blowing out in costs seemingly out of proportion to other large projects overseas. We've got a real problem here with massive cost overrun. Phil O'Reilly. Back to the Future, yeah, you well, support it, the uh, Ministry of Works? Actually, I'm, I'm going to reach out to Max a bit and say there's a, there's a bit of what that report talks about that, that, he's got a, that the authors have a bit of a point on, but it's not about building up a big new bureaucracy. If, if we think our housing woes will get better because we create a new government builder, I just don't think that's going to work. Where I think Max and his colleagues have a bit of a point is about building up government capability to be intelligent, uh, interlocutors with the private sector, intelligent uh, procurers, if you like, of buildings and of infrastructure, because we've seen numerous examples where 
government agencies are building one big thing or, or you know, the officials will have no experience of building this stuff and they make lots of mistakes in procurement and it gets very slow and very political. So I think there's something in the idea of building up a central government capacity or at least some capacity around ensuring that they are as intelligent as the private sector and as, as experienced as the private sector uh, in building stuff. But after that, I think, no, you've got to leave it to the private sector. New Zealand's a very, very different place to how it was in the 60s and 70s uh, when the Ministry of Works was around. OK, stay there, Max. We'll bring Alan first. Well, I've been banging on about wanting to have a sort of centralised Ministry of Works type entity for some time because um, I was actually involved with Jackie earlier, Jackie Paul, um, in some research around building capacity as part of the National Science Challenge. And we came to the same conclusion that there was so much to be gained from centralised purchasing and acquisition in a very concerted way um, and a more strategic approach to housing and building and development. Because if you think about it, the Ministry of Works was created at that time when we built 40,000 houses in a very short period of time. We also trained generations of top-level tradespeople right across the building sector, you know, who all went through the Ministry of Works. If you were a Ministry of Works trained engineer, builder or plumber, you knew that you'd had great training. And when we lost to the Ministry of Works, we lost a lot of that procurement capacity and training capacity. Now, the building industry, and I'm sorry, Phil, I do disagree with you on this front, I don't think that the private sector is doing a very good job of delivering. And I think that the whole neoliberal thinking behind the privatisation of many of those organisations in the 80s has proven to be quite faulty. I mean, we didn't have leaky buildings. We didn't have a lack of engineers and electricians when those things were centralised. We did have a bloated bureaucracy. I agree with you there. But I do think there's a way in the middle between okay. the bloated bureaucracy Gosh, and the market. It's so interesting here. So Eve, I disagree pretty strongly with Phil on that one. But Max, I mean, would a, would a government department, would a Ministry of Works help with the incredible blowout in costs, or would it exacerbate it? Yeah, we, we, Jackie and I said we thought it would help, and that's for a few reasons. Um, first, as, as Phil said, um, if you build up capacity in government, you actually ensure that government is smart enough to deal with the private sector. But the second point is that you can also bring in people from the private sector, and, and this is how the old Ministry of Works um, operated at the best of times. So you can bring in some of the best architects, um, you can bring in some of the best um, builders and engineers. And having that standing capacity um, can actually be really important um, as we need to respond in future to things like climate change and perhaps future public health crises. Something's got to be done, Phil. Our infrastructure is taking way, way too long. You've got the likes of, uh, uh, where is it, Madrid. They can build a 75k tunnel in three and a bit years because the president said the speed is of the essence. Time is a massive factor. I agree. And, and just so it's taking too long. Let me play back at you. And a government agency will make it faster. I mean, really? That would be the first time in recorded history that that's going to work. <laughs> the, the, it, it, the Infrastructure Commission actually came out with a useful report on this the other day and said a lot of this is to do with poor planning procedures, poor RMA procedures, and so on. The private sector here isn't the problem. It's the system going, well, they're part of the problem, but they're not the main problem. You're not going to solve it by putting a bureaucracy in place. The better idea is to think about this as a system and ask yourself how you might better how, how you might get better outcomes. Max, we will have to come back with a summit response on this. Kia Thanks for uh, joining us. Uh, that's uh, Max Harris there. My dad administered the Ministry of Works post-World War II to the 70s I call his the heroic generation because they rebuilt New Zealand. 
Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, 8 to 5, the panel. Phil O'Reilly, Ella Henry with me. Well, in light of the ever-rising cost of living, more and more people are taken to the seas to help put food on the table. Noble, noble pursuit in theory, but Water Safety NZ says they're hearing stories of people taking real risks to feed family. Drowning figures are up from this time last year, and the organisation is really worried. With us is Dive Otago Director Virginia Watson. Kia ora, Virginia. Thanks for having me on the show today. Yeah, ple- pleasure. Nice to have you here. What shortcuts may people be taking in order to collect uh, their seafood? Um, I think that people really just need to um, yeah, just stop and check themselves before they enter the water. So making sure that they understand the environment they're in. Uh, a lot of us around this time of year are in locations that aren't our home dive sites. You know, we're visiting friends in Fano, um, and we might not be familiar with the places that we're diving. So, getting that local knowledge around the areas we're in um, is really important. Yeah, Ella, I couldn't agree more. And you know, having grown up, I'm, I was raised around Ahipara in the far north, which is a mm. notoriously dangerous stretch of water. Yeah. But if you grow up there and you know it, and you know the tides, and you know the weather, as our, our elders did, and you know the rules, which is you never go out alone, you never turn your back on the sea, you always respect Tangaroa. You know, there's some basic rules to live by that will allow you to harvest very successfully from from our moana. We are so rich in our beautiful, you know, we have three coastlines, really, when you think about it. So I think those rules need to be instilled right through school. And and unfortunately, too many schools are having to fill in their swimming pools, so kids are not learning to swim at school, so we exacerbate the problem. Virginia? Yeah, definitely. Um, teaching people, you know, from a, from a really young age, just some really basic snorkeling skills, you know, can be, you know, skills oh, yeah. that will, will, will be with them for the rest of their life. Actually, I understand that Otago, Dive Otago, does, uh, you, you do deliver Kaupapa Māori courses in the region uh, as as well. Yeah, so we're part of a, a network of um, dive centres throughout the country that are, are delivering some um, courses specifically for Māori and Pacific Island uh, people um, looking to kind of, you know, curb the trend, which is showing that those, those populations are overrepresented in the drowning statistics. So... We're putting together some sort of ocean safety workshops, some snorkeling, some freediving and some scuba diving courses that are taught in a way that we think will connect better with okay. those communities. That sounds absolutely wonderful. Um, Phil O'Reilly. I, I have a bad relationship with the sea. Uh, it's because whenever I... Whenever I'm on the beach, Project Jonah comes along to try to coax me back out to sea. So I, I don't spend much time there. But the, the, thing, that, the thing that really uh, impressed me about this story was, look, here we have road to zero and we're going to have police on the roads and we're going to be having a look at breathalyzing you and all that sort of stuff. So we take the road toll really seriously, whether you agree with all that or not, it doesn't matter, we do. Why don't we take the same seriousness about deaths on our coastline. It seems extraordinary that we don't get a full court press on this. We've got hundreds of people a year, as I understand it, dying, and I'm going to read the news over the summer about the next sort of boaty dying or something. That's, that's, we should feel as, as exercised about that as a country as we do about the road toll, but we I don't seem to. We seem no, to think, oh, well, that's, what, that's the way it is, you know? I don't think it's hundreds. Nonetheless, it is very significant, and uh, sadly, Virginia, the trend is the wrong way, huh? Yeah, definitely. You know, there's there's some really um, you know key things that um, you know unfortunately are happening over and over again um, when we're investigating some of these fatalities. 
So some of the things that are getting missed are, you know, never diving alone, like Alice said, but um, also when you are diving with someone, actually being a good buddy. So actually um, not getting distracted, you know, maybe by, by the crayfish in the rock, um, but, you know, having one person at the surface watching a diver okay. while yep. diving. Okay, that's that's well. That, I can I can get that straight away, Ella. Having one person watching while the other's diving. Okay, that's easy to understand. Buddy diving, buddy right. diving is absolutely critical. The moment you you go down there, that you have at least somebody up on the boat, two people down below taking care of each other. You know, that's a minimum of three people who've also checked the weather, who've also got enough safety gear, who've also let people know when they're going out and when they're due back in. So basic principles ah. of safety, you know. Very good to know, Virginia. Is there any, before you go, we've got uh, 40 or so seconds, any other uh, tips or a couple of tips that you can give us for this season? Yep, definitely. So being really ready to drop your weight belt is a big one. A lot of people are found with their weight belt on them when dropping their weight belt would have brought them to the surface really quickly. Also making sure the catch bag's not attached to them. So making sure that that is able to be dropped at any minute so you can come to the surface for your next breath. Very, very good. Very, drop the weight pout and your catch is not attached to you. Um, Virginia Watson, Dive Otago Director, Kia ora. Appreciate your time this afternoon. Kia ora. Thanks, guys. And away from the sea, surprisingly large response about Phil and his barbecue. Uh, weirdly, <laughs> someone says, if poking at a bit of steak or a sausage or, God forbid, a bit of pineapple on the barbie is too stressful, I would suggest get a note from Phil's mum saying you're not well, you can't do it, or just flatly refuse, claiming that it's sexist, expecting men only Quite to right. run the barbie. Quite it's right. sexist, Phil. Don't, right. You don't have to do the barbecue this year, all right? I feel relieved already, and thank you. Merry Christmas all. Merry Christmas This is Checkpoint on RNZ National. I'm Susie Ferguson. Coming up on the programme, the political shake-up continues in Fiji. We'll bring you the latest turn of events in their ongoing election. Dairy NZ are somewhat on board with the government's emissions pricing plan, but say important issues still need resolving. We'll hear what those are. The long-awaited expressway from Pekapeka to Otaki is nearly there. Friday's the day for that one. And 746 lambs shorn in eight hours. We speak to the humble teenager from Taihape, who's our newest world record holder. All of these stories and more coming up after the news here on Checkpoints on RNZ National.